Today, we are going to talk about who's who in the dependency care system. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Kat, and today we're going to talk about the who's who of the child dependency system. So being part of the child welfare system, you and I both know there's so many different parties involved, right? Oh yeah, it can be so difficult to get caught up. Yeah, and there's, um, you know, there's a reason for every person who's involved in the system. Um, But sometimes if you're a new foster parent or you're a biological parent whose child has just been removed, it can be very overwhelming to figure out who is who. Mm -hmm. It's so true. So today we thought we would talk about who is who in the child welfare system. When we're talking about dependency, when a child has been removed from their Uh, legal guardian, um, who are the different players involved? So uh, obviously the primary person involved is the child. Sometimes that is one or more than one. Usually when a removal happens, they take all children in that home, out of that home. Sometimes that doesn't always happen and, you know, one kid is left and another one is removed, but usually all children are removed. Yeah, it's true. And and I don't know that a lot of people know this, but Um, sometimes someone will call in a referral on someone who's pregnant or something, and unfortunately they can't take that call until the child is actually born. So that's what that means by the child. So uh, childhood doesn't start till day one of life. Right. Outside the womb. Right. So um, the child is the person who is removed from the parent. Sometimes there's one, sometimes there's many. Has to be uh, already birthed child. Already birthed. I've seen as many as like 15, 16 in a family before. Yeah, and, uh, you know, sometimes they're able to be placed together, sometimes they aren't, but that is the primary player. That is, uh, should always be the sole focus of any given case. That's true. The next important player is the parent, and that is the legal guardian of the child who is removed. This could be biological or adopted. Right. Um, Almost all of my cases have been biological, but I did have that one case where it was an Mm -hmm. adopted family. It was really a relative that had adopted the Mm -hmm. child, and and they were considered the parent in that case. So, um, and sometimes the parent is, you know, a non-offending party. Like if a child lives with one parent and is removed from that parent and there's another parent involved, sometimes that parent can take custody and sometimes they're not approved to take custody. But, you know, whether you've got one parent or two parents, and sometimes 
there's more than two parents if you have a step parent or That's true. other legal yeah. guardian. Sometimes the non-offending parent will live out of state, which is one of the things that drags these cases on for so long. A home study will have to be done on the out-of-state parent. Right. And then you've got, you know, for all of these partners that are involved locally, then you've got all these partners that are involved, you know, across the country. And, you know, it definitely t- takes uh, longer to accomplish goals that way. So the next player that we're going to discuss is CPI. That's right. In different areas, this, this player can be called different things like investigator. Um, I'm sure it's called different things in, in all different states. But here in Florida, we call it CPI. Right. So um, the CPI is the person who investigates the abuse report and makes a determination based on certain factors whether that child needs to be removed or whether the child can be given a safety plan so that the child can stay at home and they can work with the parents to try and resolve the issues without removal happening. And of course, uh, often there are no indicators that the abuse is happening. So then, you know, they, they finish their report and they leave. Um, you know, in our area, the CPI is part of the sheriff's department, but in many states around the country, they're actually part of the DCF system. It's true. I think we're one of the few states where CPI is part of the sheriff's department. And it's actually a small percentage of cases that ends in removal. Last I checked, it was 5%, but that was years and years ago. So don't quote me on that. Yeah, and I think um, I was talking to a CPI recently, and and, uh, one of the things that I mentioned is, you know, because what I've seen when kids come into care is, Oftentimes, many attempts have been made to keep the child in the home, and I think a lot of people think that, you know, CPI is just out to, like, take your kids away, mm-hmm. but really it's a last resort, and, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to work through, if there really even is a problem, they're trying to work through the problem with the family to solve it without removal, and then they're trying to find a friend or family member to help out with caregiving for the child, and, you know, obviously... When nothing else can be done, the child is then removed, and CPI handles bringing that child into foster care. It's true, and sometimes that includes setting services up for the family. Or it can even be, you know, I've seen referrals called in that the family doesn't have um, appropriate winter clothing for the child, or the family doesn't have electricity. So sometimes all they do is help them with their immediate need, and they call that family in need of assistance. And that's it. And then they get back out. Yeah. I've actually um, had known of a couple of people where they had an issue in their home and they were concerned. So they called CPI themselves oh, wow. on their own situation. And the result was that CPI came out and helped them solve their problems, um, whether that was therapy or uh, getting them in touch with certain resources. So, you know, CPI really is out there to just, you know, make sure everybody's safe and help when possible. The next player is placement. And so you have a lot more experience with placement than I do. Sure. So placement is um, the partner that basically when CPI has to remove a child, they fill out a referral and that is given to placement. And placement, they also call it intake, at least in our area. Now placement receives the information about the child who was removed or the children, if it's a sibling group, 
and locates and matches that child or sibling group with someone to care for them. So they're looking uh, primarily for foster homes. If the child needs a medical foster home, they will go to see who has a medical foster home with an open bed. Um, if the child is able to go into traditional foster care, they're looking for a foster home available that is willing to take a child that is of that age and that gender. And, um, you know, a worst case scenario, sometimes they have to place that child in a group home. But yeah, placements, um, basically they take that intake from CPI after removal happens and find somewhere for that child to go. That's right. And it's really good for a foster parent to have a good relationship with their placement people. Is that right? Yeah, it really is because, you know, the the people at placement, they really want the best for these kids. You know, they have such big hearts and uh, which is, you know, probably part of the reason that when they call me, it's so hard to say no, because I know how much they, like how much they care about that child is just seeping through the phone. And then I just want to help, you know. Um, so having a good relationship with the people that work in placement, I feel like is really important because they know my family, they know what works for us, they know what doesn't work for us. They know that, you know, if they send a child with a certain behavior, then that's not going to work well with my other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, also they'll know when my kids are leaving, um, and when I'll have open space available. So, um, I really love, uh, the placement team that I've worked with. And uh, really appreciate them. And, you know, uh, my my three kids who've been adopted, you know, when they were placed with me, especially one, because there was, you know, it was a very specific situation. And, uh, you know, I always make sure they're invited to, you know, adoption hearings yeah. and stuff. And I think I've got a picture of um, one of them actually was able to come. Like, she got someone to cover for her at work and came to one of my son's adoptions. And, that's so um, nice. You know, I got a picture of the two of them together. Well, so. that's what I'm thinking of. I remember you saying something like, oh, I've got to answer. This is the placement person who gave me Baby Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I always teased her. I'm like, listen, you gave Baby Jack to me and... Like, he's my world, and, you know, I will always do whatever you ask me. Like, you won me over when you placed that child in my arms. So, yeah, placement is a pretty special place. Aww. So the next uh, player involved is the caregiver, the person responsible for caring for the child on a day-to-day basis. Uh, Generally, that's the foster home, Mm -hmm. um, the foster parents. Uh, It could also be... Um, a relative or a non-relative caregiver, um, basically whoever ends up being responsible for taking care of that child on a day-to-day basis, basically substituting in for the parent until the mm-hmm. parent is able to take the child back. So I've seen relatives as young as like 21, 22 years old, like an older sibling, you know, and they're just making it work. I've seen great-grandparents making it work. And then if kids end up in a group home, those people are, they're working shifts, you know, they're working eight hour shifts, um, taking care of those kids. And so, I mean, the good thing about that is that means someone is, um, usually on shift at night, but the bad thing is, is it means that the kids have less opportunities to bond. Yeah. Well, it's an institutionalized situation and, you know, we know from experience and from our country's history and other countries' history, what's happened to kids who live in an institutionalized environment. So obviously, you know, that we're not, not the biggest fans of right, them. That's not the best thing for kids. <laughs> but generally it's a foster parent or a relative. Uh, every now and then it can also be a, um, a, you know, 
facility for behaviors right. or juvenile detention facility. Um, the next thing we have is um, licensing. Right. So licensing is really, um, you know, there a lot of foster parents are like, who who's here to help me? Everybody's here to help the child, but like, I need help with a certain situation, and no one's helping me. The person who's there to help you is licensing. Everybody else is there for the child. And licensing is there for the child, too. You know, they need to monitor the child and make sure the child's safe. And really, a lot of licensing's job is to make sure we're doing our job. Mm -hmm. You know, I am on the phone doing video chats and having them in my house constantly checking to make sure my home is safe. Mm -hmm. Talking to my kids to make sure, you know, everything is going well and that everybody is being safe. So licensing is responsible for both monitoring us foster homes and also supporting us foster homes. If I need access to a resource, if I need someone to help me get a kid in daycare, if I need, um, basically I need something and none of the other partners are able to access it for me, uh, licensing is who I would go to. Yeah, they have a really important job. Um, And not just supporting you guys, but you know, when people, when I've I've heard people complain, about the foster care system, you know, like parents who've just had their kids removed or um, or just other people in general because I've been in this field for a long, long time. And they'll complain about something they've seen on the news or something they've heard through the grapevine about foster parents or or our favorite um, myth that foster parents are doing it for the money because <laughs> now you're rich for sure. <laughs> um, and um, licensing... One of the things they're there for is to make sure that the things that we see on the news don't happen again. You know, right. Are, you know, if something happens, if a foster parent ends up not being a good fit, you know, they're they're going through and they're saying what went wrong and how can we make sure this doesn't happen again. And sometimes what that ends up being is, um, you know, better locks on medication or, you know. Um, yeah. They, we, they send out emails like um, every week or so. And every time they send out an email and there's, like, a, a new rule we have to follow, we're like, oh, who did that? Like, uh-huh. <laughs> you know there's a story behind every new rule, and it's just that, you know, they're doing their best to keep everybody safe. And exactly. that's, like, everybody's biggest job is to keep these kids safe. And when that doesn't happen, that's really, um, you know, that's a failing on many parts. But licensing is, um, you know, they're, they're there to keep the kids safe. They're there to make sure we're keeping the kids mm-hmm. safe. And even when there's more rules, it's like there's a reason for those mm-hmm. rules. You know, yeah. when they send out an email, like, remember this, guys. Remember not to do this. And it's like, you look at it and you're like, of course we don't do like, That's ridiculous. I, yeah. They sent out an email one time that was like, uh, don't leave your kids home alone and drive to school to drop off your other kids. Like, don't leave your infants I think alone. I remember that. And Is unfortunately, that... there was a story behind that. Yeah, so... I remember that. They're, uh, you know, they're there to keep the kids safe. They're there to make sure we're doing our job. But they're also there to support us when, you know, we need someone to tell us how to do something. Yeah, so licensing has a really important job. Um, Case management. So this is probably the uh, role that we talk about maybe the most, or the the role that has the most interaction with everybody. Um, Case management is probably also the most overworked other than CPI, oh yeah, partner uh, involved. Case management does almost everything. They supervise visits. They create a case plan for the parents, and the case plan is what helps parents get their kids back. It's like the contract for them to get their kids back. 
They manage that case plan. They monitor the parent's progress, which means, um, you know, sometimes making sure that they're popping in to do drug tests, which means calling the agencies and the resources and making sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, checking in with the parents. Checking with their therapists, checking checking with their classes and any drug rehab programs. Constant, like they const- Everything that the parent has to do, the case manager has to check. Make sure they're doing mm-hmm. it, see how they're doing it, check in with the parents, talk to them. It, you know, a lot of the times when the, they first give the case plan to the parents, the parents may not understand it's very overwhelming when your kids first come into care to understand all the different things and factors and what's going on especially if you've got a problem like a a dependency problem where you might not um, be coherent all the time Mm -hmm. so oftentimes the case manager is giving the case plan and explaining everything over and over Uh and over (laughs) yeah and you know they're helping them overcome their obstacles like if they don't have a vehicle the parents don't have a vehicle they're giving them bus passes or if the child is far away from the parents they're just helping them overcome all of those obstacles so that they can get their kids back and so in an ideal world they would be a support to every party in the situation um, and then ultimately they have to report to the court at every court hearing yeah and they also have to come and check on the kids very regularly like they have to come and lay eyes and talk to the kid make sure they're getting everything they need make sure they're safe so while licensing is making sure foster parents are doing their job case management are um, also directly doing that for each specific child right um and so sometimes case management will have just dozens and dozens and dozens of kids Well, I think that there is a limit on how many cases they can have, but not a limit on how many children they can have assigned to them. So that's in Florida. Right. Um, And I I don't, that's a rule you told me. I don't know that like Uh firsthand, but I believe you. I'm, you know, I'm not a case manager, so I don't know all the laws about case managers and we can ask one soon um, when they come in here and chat with us. However, I'm pretty sure there's a limit on how many case plans, but not a limit on how many kids the okay. reason that is a problem is a lot of these case plans might have anywhere from 5 to 15 kids on it. Mm-hmm. So then you're dealing with a situation where, okay, you can only have this many cases, but then let's say two of your case plans have like over eight kids on it. And let's say they're separated in two different right. counties. So the the work gets um, mm-hmm. gets to be a lot more. Than- it does. And you've got to do sibling visits and your parent visits and all that. Um, in Texas... The rule was um, they didn't want us to have more than 16 to 18 kids, but we often had well over 30. Hmm. And so um, I can't imagine having more than 30. I think there was someone that had over 40 ones, um, which is a lot. Well, especially because when you consider that case managers, each individual case manager is legally responsible for that child. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think we heard in the news at some point where something happened to a child while they were in care, and like the case managers can be sued, they could they could go to court and be criminally um, uh, held responsible mm-hmm. for the children. So even though they're not the one caring for the child's day to day needs, it's almost like they're a parent to that child. They're a legal right. guardian, making sure that yeah. everything. And if everything isn't okay, they're responsible. Yeah, and I mean these. Um, there's a reason for that. You know, you're taking kids away from their family. You can't just drop them off in a home and say, okay, we'll see you later. You know, someone has to be responsible while those parents are getting, or I'll like rephrase, someone has to be responsible while 
permanency is found for those kids, which is kind of an emergency, you know? Well, these kids are in limbo. And so, you know, it wasn't that long ago when Rilo Wilson, was that her name, Rilo Wilson? I believe so. Yeah. Um, went missing, and nobody had visited her in a long, long time. Yeah. No, no case manager had visited. And that was a crisis in Florida that case managers weren't visiting kids. And I, I don't think it was out of negligence. I think it was out of literally no minutes in the day. Yeah. Which is why I think a lot of reform has taken place. But definitely, we, you know, we definitely need to. We can to. always get better. We definitely need to get yeah. better. I know when I talk to my kids' case managers, they're always... Um, like, they care about these kids. They just don't always have enough time to do what they There's need to no do time. for the kids. There's no time. And they're under a lot of pressure from all, like, not just from judges, not just from parents, from supervisors, from their own um, policies. And I remember our um, when I worked for the state, there were also overtime rules. You know, so how can you see all these kids who are in, you know, all over the state of Texas, but you know, there were also rules about how many hours we could work, too. It's, there's just a lot of pressure, so I can, I can imagine. But... Um, how difficult it is. Yeah, it's definitely one of the primary players. They, you know, they have to go to court, and when the judge is not happy about something that hasn't been done or has been done, they're the ones responsible for it. And, you know, I would say one of the changes in recent years is that judges don't handle case management with um, kid gloves anymore. Oh, no. I mean, I it's <laughs> usually when... You know, with COVID, we're doing court virtually, so you sit in a waiting room until your hearing is ready, and then you go in. However, um, previous to that, like, I would go to court, and, you know, you would wait for your hearing to come, but there might be, you know, five, six to ten hearings before you, and, you know, a good portion of the time, case managers were getting chewed out, and, Mm -hmm. you know, depending on the judge, you know, they, they understand the limitations, but... Um, but also sometimes you're sitting there and you're like, how did this not get done? Like I was here for my kid's court last month and I heard them telling you on your case that you need to do this. But yeah, I think that all the time too, with some of my kids that I have now, you know, I don't know. It's, but I do have compassion for them too. Oh, a hundred percent. I don't know how they do. And, and the other thing is that often when I have case managers, they're usually because of the high turnover, it is such a stressful job. They're usually very young. They're usually right mm-hmm. out of college. And to have that kind of pressure, and I know you talked earlier about being a case manager and what that pressure was like for you at such a young age to, like, have these children's lives in your hands mm-hmm. and, um, you know, their permanency in your hands. Uh, I can't imagine what that's like at that age. You know, I was barely, you know, <laughs> functioning yeah. like a human at that point right. in time. So yeah. um, I definitely have all the sympathy in the world for them. Um, it's just, it's so, it's a hard job for anybody. And so often they're so young and um, so inexperienced. And like if they haven't had kids, but they're telling mm-hmm. these parents how to handle their kids. Yeah. And, you know, I have worked with some excellent case managers, like really good ones, yeah. really, really good ones. So and there's probably a personality type out there that handles that job well um you know if they could take a cookie cutter and like (laughs) make a million of those guys that would be great yeah definitely need more there aren't enough and uh it's a very hard job another player that we have talked extensively about is the guardian ad litem now um in other areas it's called a casa Mm -hmm. um and there might be other terms in other states 
However, this is the unbiased third party representing the needs and desires of the child. They visit with the child. They make sure that the kid is getting what they need. They make sure the child is safe in the home. Um, they visit the child in the home. They visit the child in school. They report to court on, you know, what they're seeing on the child. Uh, they report to court any any needs that child has. Um, and also in certain situations when the child is older, they, you know, the child might be expressing, you know, I really want to have more visits with my sibling. I really want to get reunified. I really want to be adopted and not go home. I don't feel safe there. And the guardian is someone that they can, um, when that guardian has a good relationship with them and they feel safe with them, the guardian is someone they can give this information to and the guardian can relate it to the court without having, you know, skin in the game. Mm-hmm. It's true. And they they help um, really identify some of the um, more, like, fine-tuned needs of the child. Like, if it's a child who would benefit from some extracurricular activities, often the guardian ad litem will help say, hey, this is a kid who probably needs to be running around a little more after school. Let's get him into soccer. I've seen them do some of that. Um, And sometimes they can help with things like facilitating visits with parents and things like that. So I've had mostly good experiences with guardian ad litems. Yeah, I love my gals. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The next player on our list is the attorney representing the state so this is the attorney that's fighting for the child's best interest at court right so at least in our area this is an asa an assistant state attorney and this is the person who is you know um it's the attorney who is standing there on one side um usually with the case manager discussing what their recommendations are um and basically everybody who's fighting for the child, the case manager, the gal, the assistant state attorney will argue the court for the child's best interest. So sometimes they have more or less um, involvement in the child's life, but usually it's not a whole, whole lot. No, um, I, you know, as a foster parent, none of my kids have ever met their assistant state attorney. Oh, that's not true. One of them did. She was older and she went to court sometimes, but Uh, I don't think really any of my other kids have met the state attorney. So the state attorney is basically not looking at the child, but they're looking at facts. What were the conditions of removal? What has the parent done to rectify them? The assistant state attorney, even though they're, they're fighting for the best interest of the child, they're really determining whether the parent has done what they're supposed to do and made the changes to bring the child home safely. Often, many of the parties aren't even allowed to contact the state attorney because that would be a conflict of interest. Um, There are situations where um, the foster parent can uh, provide information to the state attorney. Mm -hmm. There's um, opportunities for foster parents to fill out forms that the court sends out um, to provide information. But the state attorney, um, like they're the one who, if a child needs to be TPR'd, which is when you terminate the parental rights, they're the one who um, fights for that to happen. Um, or when the child is ready to be reunified, they go to the court and say, you know, this child's ready to be reunified, the parent has completed their tasks, and that's our recommendation to the court. Okay, so the next person on our list, the next player is the judge. <laughs> the judge is the overseer of the court process. They make decisions based on the best interests of the child. Right, so, you know, when I was... Whenever I've watched TV and there's court going on, 
everything's always decided by juries, right? Mm-hmm. But in dependency system, at least as far as I've ever experienced, it's all, everything is always decided by the judge. So everybody brings all of their information to the table. The judge decides what they're going to do based on that information, and the judge may ask questions during the court hearing of the various parties and use that information as well to make a determination. But we always say, something we always say in our house is, uh, on any given day in court, anything can happen. So, you know, you don't want to presume one thing or another is gonna happen, regardless of whether the case manager or the guardian is saying, oh, this is gonna happen, oh, that's gonna happen, license is saying, oh, this will probably happen. Anything can happen when you go to mm-hmm. court. So regardless of what you're looking at and what you're thinking might happen, um, you know, the judge might know something that you don't. The judge might see something differently than you do. Um, and the judge can make any decision on any day. So any day that you go to court, a child could be reunified. And that's, you know, what we always say is like, you know, when you're like, oh, I love this kid. Just remember, on any given day in court, mm-hmm. you know, that judge could um, reunify that parent and and that's really a good thing and doesn't happen enough. But, um, you know, just keeping in mind that everything really independency is in the hands of the judge that is overseeing. Yeah, it really is. Judges could do anything that they want to. Um, the times that I've seen that happen the most is when family members have a home study that's denied and then they go to court and the judge will overturn the denial. I have seen that happen so many times. In fact, um, I, I also have had a situation where case management and guardian ad litem was saying that the children were not ready to be home, to go home. Um, you know, I felt like the children were ready to go home. The parent had done everything on the case plan. You know, what more can you ask of them other than everything that they've done? Mm-hmm. And especially if they're not making bad choices anymore. Um, so everybody was recommending that the children don't go home, but they went to court and the judge looked and said, she's done everything. Um, I'm absolutely going to send her home. So, you know, they're the end-all, be-all. The the judge determines what happens to that child and what happens with those parents. Um, So the last player, and there are other players. These are just the most critical ones that we have listed. The parent attorney. This is the attorney representing the parents, and they are fighting for the parents' requests. And they're just making sure that um, nothing is overlooked for the parents. They're making sure that the parents' rights are not being violated, um, that the caseworkers are doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're making sure that it's fair. Well, for one thing, it's so overwhelming for birth parents when their children are first removed and they're thrown into this court process. It's really important for that parent's attorney to be able to explain things to them. Like, these are the things that are happening. This is what they mean. These are your options. And also to stand up there for them in court and, you know, fight for the things that they're asking for. Because everybody else is fighting for, you know, what they think is best in this particular situation. That, you know, and often, here's the other thing, often the parents are so emotional because we're talking about their kids here. Mm -hmm. It's important for someone who isn't emotionally invested such as the parent of a child, to be able to stand before the judge and all these people and say, these are the things that we want to happen. This is what we think is fair. Um, Because for the parent to have to do that for themselves isn't reasonable because they're not used to court, usually. Mm -hmm. They don't know what their rights are. And 
a big part of it is because we're talking about your kids here. Like you talk about my kids, I'm going animal on you. And you know, this is someone who's had their kids completely taken out of their life for that moment. So of course they're going to be emotional and to expect them to be reasonable and professional and ask for the things they want and know what they are, um, what rights they have is asking a lot. So it's really important for them to have an attorney who is, um, you know, an advocate for them, an advocate for their rights, mm-hmm. and making sure that, you know, they, their kids are getting contact with them and visits. Right. And, you know, when it's time for those kids to go home, that they're going home. Exactly. Someone who can help them navigate the court system and, and speak for them. Like, for instance, often parents will be given the right to, um, you know, an hour visit a week or two hour visits a week. And by the time I get to them, when I'm writing a CBHA or something, um, their child has been in care for over a month and they haven't had a single visit. So yeah. an attorney is someone who can help them um, really make sure that they're getting that visit that they are supposed to have. Right. And usually this is an attorney who's appointed by the court during one of the initial hearings. Every once in a while, a parent will hire a private attorney as their attorney to represent them in court. But most of the time, mm-hmm. um, they're being appointed by the judge in the courtroom. Yeah. And I remember when this change took place, and that was I think that was a really important time because, you know, parents really, everybody has an attorney. Child Protective Services has an attorney. The child has an attorney. And then the parents are alone. And if this was a parent who couldn't even, you know, their mental health was suffering and they couldn't even clean their house, imagine how difficult it is to now navigate a court system and try right. to get their kids back. Or if with someone who is struggling with drug abuse is barely, you know, getting through their own rehabilitation, how overwhelming. Even being a foster parent for quite some time um, doesn't really teach you everything you need to know about what's going to go on in a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And I learn things all the time. And, you know, I've been doing this for years, so someone who is in the middle of having their kids removed um, can't be expected to navigate that alone. Right. It's true. So they really need to have that person in their corner. So, Yeah. So those are all the main players. And, you know, we'll talk more about them soon. But, you know, we wanted to have a quick overview on that. So thank you for joining us. Thanks again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.